The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, everyone. It's Jeremy from The Storage Papers. I just wanted to take an opportunity to let you know about all the things we've added this season. In addition to our new website, we've added a Facebook group and a YouTube channel with captions, as well as information about the show on the website itself. In addition, each episode released for Season 2 has unique episode art. And we now have full episode transcripts available on our website if you'd like to read along while you listen. The Storage Papers is free to listen to, but it's not necessarily free to create. If you feel so inclined, we now have a donation option up on the website where you can give a one-time donation for what you think the show is worth. Every penny does help. There is also a limited supply of stickers for purchase there too, measuring 3 by 3 inches of the Storage Papers logo, going for $5. And if you don't necessarily have the means to financially support the show, you can still do so by sharing our social media posts with your friends. I'll be doing a random drawing to give away five of our stickers to anyone who shares a social media post about the show and tags us between now and September 12th, 2020. Thank you so much for sticking with the show through all of the COVID drama, and I hope you enjoy the remaining episodes of Season 2. This podcast contains content which may be too intense for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to The Storage Papers. Episode 16, Sine Nomine. If you've been listening to the Storage Papers podcast at all, You'll notice I frequently ask for listener comments, feedback, and for additional information if a listener happens to be aware of any corroborating information or anything that can provide any context to the topic at hand. Well, I believe I received some communication from someone who can offer just that. I recently received a direct message on Twitter from a user going by the name Sine Nomine, which in Latin means without a name or nameless. 
His or her Twitter handle is at fourth trumpet with a numerical number four. A lot of the messages I've received through social media thus far have been from people claiming to have additional information about some of the cases covered thus far, but haven't necessarily been able to provide any information that's relevant or that furthers my knowledge beyond what I've shared. It took me a few messages with this Twitter user to convince me that he or she may be legit. I'm not sure what pronoun to use because they have indicated to me that they wish to refrain from any information relating to their own personal identification. I'd like to share some of our initial communication now. The initial message reads, from Fourth Trumpet. Good morning. I've been listening to the storage papers since I received an automated alert that the term Project Hydra had been used. After listening for a while, I was able to discern that the information you possess is accurate. I would like to be a resource for you to help spread information about the project to the public, but I must be cautious about the details I share as I still have influential ties to the program. The more information I provide, the easier it will be for me to be identified by others in the program, so I apologize if I sometimes come across vague, but I don't always have a choice. You have my word that I'll be as detailed as possible. I'm sure you're wondering why I'm reaching out to you, and you may even be questioning whether or not you can even trust me. To demonstrate that I am who I say I am, I'm going to share some details inside a document currently in your possession that you have not shared on the podcast yet. You may not have even found this document yet, so make sure you search for a letter dated Monday, November 19th, 2018, addressed to whom it may concern, with a signature that has been redacted. You'll find the contents of this letter to include claims of extraterrestrial beings walking among us, quotes from the Bible, and the U.S. government, NASA, and high-ranking members of the Air Force's involvement in clandestine projects from someone who claims to be in the service of his country for over 30 years now. The reason I'm choosing now to reach out to you, as opposed to reaching out previously to Ron, is because you've provided the perfect anonymous vessel for me to expose some of this to the public. I've been aware of Ron's limited involvement in some of these cases, but there was just no way for me to reach out to Ron without a high level of risk. I have come to despise the work I am a part of and the implications it has for the American people, who aren't even aware of what's going on. Even our senators, or at least none that I'm aware of, have zero knowledge of what's being done with these black programs with taxpayer dollars. Take a look at the document I just referenced, and when you're ready, I'm happy to take any questions that you have. I have to admit, since... uh, I've been getting a lot of messages from people who claim to have knowledge of these events in the papers. I didn't jump right in with an effort to search for the document he referenced. Instead, I figured I'd put this person to the test just a bit, which would also buy some time to allow me to look for it later if he truly had knowledge of Project Hydra. So I replied to him after a couple of days. Here's what I said. 
Okay, I guess I'll start with the basics. What is Project Hydra? His reply came while I was eating dinner that night. He claimed, Project Hydra, as it is known today, is an evolved version of research into many avenues of the unexplained. When I was recruited for the project, they told me it was the American continuation of foreign research into the occult, with focused areas of science that most mainstream researchers would steer clear from for fear that their reputations may be at stake. Project Hydra, much like the mythical beast, the Hydra, has many compartmentalized areas of research and development, or heads, if you will. If you think of it as an organization like a Venn diagram, it might be useful. I myself am only aware of these areas because they frequently overlap, and we are only involved with other areas through mediators. Only a select few people have authority over each head, and even those people only have limited knowledge of what other areas consist of themselves. These people represent crossover areas within the Venn diagram. I have reason to believe that there are probably just one or two people overseeing these authority figures. While my superiors have great knowledge and background in two or three of these areas themselves, they are not always cautious with information they provide. Over the years, I've tried, whenever possible, to acquire information about the different compartmentalized sections, claiming the information is necessary for me to conduct my research. Every six to twelve months, I would have a new superior to report to, with no explanation offered regarding why. Each new superior did not seem to have knowledge of the work I'd been conducting, so I would have to brief them. I saw this as an opportunity to gain new information with each rotation. As far as I can tell, Project Hydra, like I said, has multiple heads, or areas of research. I'm not sharing these with you in any particular order, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to say which head or heads I'm involved in. I just know there are areas in psychical research, studies of the occult, or the more traditional paranormal events one may think about, some kind of medical head, I'm not certain if that's standalone or a subdivision of another, there's robotics, cybernetics, cryptids, again not sure if this may be a subgroup, and UFOs, or if I'm going to use the modern technology, UAPs, and extraterrestrial life research. Of course, I can't be certain if these consist of the entire list of heads, but they are the ones I have been able to verify personally. My guess, though I have no proof, is that there may be a religious head, or perhaps that falls under the studies of the occult. There seems to also be a thematically consistent element of religious tone in communication with what happens with some of the compartments, but it's difficult to know why. It's just a hunch. The Hydra of the Bible, as you've alluded to in your podcast, has seven heads and ten horns, so it may be logical to assume that's the case here, at least if the people in charge are organizing in terms of Christianity. Examples of hydras in mythology have varying numbers of heads, but who really knows? I get paid very well to research what I do, but it comes at a personal price. I'm not allowed to have a family, and I live somewhere very remote. I'm also monitored at work when I'm there, and of course I'm not able to openly speak about my work. I haven't signed a non-disclosure agreement, 
but I've been threatened. Some people assigned to my area last mere days on the job. For some reason, people just can't resist the temptation of talking to their co-workers to ask about the bigger picture. Once someone even hints at acquiring more information or opens discussion, they don't show up the next day. I can tell you this, I've seen many things in my research that the average person wouldn't believe. I've also seen evidence that our scientific community knows a lot more about what most consider, quote, unexplainable than they've let the public know. I've been put into a position to observe and collect data, but some I work with are in roles to experiment. I used to aspire to gain that role, but I've come to believe that role to be much like handing a two-year-old some firecrackers and a lighter, saying, have at it while we watch. We're dealing with very dangerous things in this project, things that endanger everyone, and I believe everyone has the right to know. That was a longer, drawn-out answer than I expected. This person touched on some details consistent with the documents I'd found in the papers mentioning Project Hydra. At this point, I was intrigued, and I went looking for the document he referenced earlier. In the meantime, I opened the discussion further. I asked, Can you tell me a little bit about your primary area, what you're working on, and how it all started for you? He just replied, saying, I can't be this specific. Can you rephrase your question? So I said, You mentioned seeing and studying things that nobody would believe. How would you know any of these ties into other research areas? Can you give me an example? Fourth Trumpet replied, saying, I can give you one that a large number of us were privy to, and I can only share this because many of us who were there for this explanation are still working on the project. I can say that the R&D into the occult goes at least back into the years preceding World War II but I have evidence indicating that it goes back much, much further. For the sake of this discussion, I'll just reference things I've witnessed either firsthand or that I myself have studied the data for, left for my team by a predecessor. Back in the 1930s, we had significant data being collected on things like spirit communication and demonic possession. Documents describe the conditions of a controlled environment where human testing would occur. Individuals, Civilians, claiming to be psychic, would be offered compensation for study. They'd be asked to perform readings on random individuals with a series of control questions that observers knew. Questions like, can you describe the person who raised you? Were asked about people who were known to have single parents, which was a simple A-B question. With the correct answer either being male or female. Obviously back then, There weren't many single dads, so the majority of these would be female in reality, but in the so-called psychics who tested well, we'd send in a subject that actually was raised by their father. If the psychic could detect that and claim they had a high degree of certainty about it, results were more statistically significant. I won't bore you with the details about psychic research, as there were many studies going on across the country. Where my red flags first flew 
were in the research for demonic possession. Children were often used for this. Orphans. Subjects were between 10 and 15 years old typically, and a requirement was they had to have been living in a project-funded orphanage for most of their lives, or at least as early as pre-language development. A project-funded public guardian who could vouch that the child had only learned a single language by the time of testing would select the children, and they would be tested, often against their will. For these studies, the psychic mediums who were testing well in spirit communication and clairvoyance would hold seances with the children. The mediums would be tasked with searching for and communicating with demonic entities and asking them to speak to the child. Then the children would be coerced into inviting the entity to inhabit their bodies. Often the psychic would offer unique abilities as long as the child would open an invitation. It could be abilities like discerning the truth, being able to read minds, or in the most successful cases, the ability to locate one's parents. The documents I viewed indicate the children would sometimes take several months to develop these abilities, but would also lose control of their free will in the time as well. The project documented many effects of possession. Speaking of languages not previously learned, was probably the only clearly controlled data point. Another was, we'll call it, production of foreign objects or materials. You see, the children were kept in solitude and observed 24-7, so when it came time for daily questioning and observation by project researchers, a child might vomit several hundred roofing nails, or they'd have lash marks on their backs as if they'd been whipped. Of course, no explanation could be found for these things since they were under constant observation. This blew my mind. I just said, oh my god, that sounds horrible. Fourth Trumpet replied further. Oh, definitely, but I haven't even scratched the surface yet. The point of telling you about this is to provide you an example of how two areas of R&D overlapped occasionally. But here's another example. You see, the psychics were practicing their skills daily. The data regarding the accuracy of their readings showed improvement over several months or even years for some of them. Also, the attempt rate for successful possession improved along with it. This led to the hypothesis that psychic skills could be taught and developed over time. By the mid-40s, an unusual trend began to develop among the successful psychics. Mind you, there were about 11 or 12 of them who'd been with the program for more than a few years at that point. Most of the others, somewhere around 60 of them, were relatively new. But the seasoned ones, the veterans, were still being studied independently. None of them had ever met the others or had conversed with them in any way. But all of them, every single one, began reporting unfamiliar voices of unknown origin. They all believed they were beginning to communicate with beings that were living, not deceased or in spirit form, but also non-human. And then something happened. On July 16, 1945, at 1.29 p.m., 
in a project lab in Germany, all of the psychics experienced something incredible. Three of them had been conducting tests in controlled labs and had been on camera, and it was later verified that the others experienced the same effects at the same exact time. They all keeled over in pain, placing their hands over their ears as if they were blocking out a loud noise. Blood began trickling out of their ears, and on camera, if you play the video side by side, you could actually watch all three psychics being recorded doing the same thing. Of course, the scientists in each of the rooms attempt to examine their ears for about 30 seconds, but then simultaneously, each psychic stands straight up and has a change in demeanor. No longer concerned with their bleeding ears, they all speak the words, What have you done? Then they all fall down in a loss of consciousness. Later voice analysis confirmed each of the psychics spoke in the same exact voice. We were unable to determine if the voice is male or female, but the audible tone, and later once we had the technology, the waveforms, were identical. It wasn't until several months later that the Hydra team put two and two together. In a remote desert in New Mexico on the same day at 5.29 a.m., which would have been 1.29 p.m. at the lab in Germany, Trinity occurred. The Trinity Project, which was part of the Manhattan Project, experienced the first detonation of a nuclear device by the U.S. Army. There are many theories about who the psychics were channeling at the moment, but the most popular theory is we somehow caught the attention of an alien species. We still spend resources to research this event, which has almost jokingly become known as the Awakening. To this day, the three videos are the most concrete evidence to support the validity of psychic mediumship. I'd like to be really clear here. What fourth trumpet is telling me sounds completely off the wall. And if it weren't for some corroboration in the papers that I've found since this conversation, I wouldn't even be sharing this with you. The idea that psychic mediums, demons, and possibly even aliens can coexist in the same universe is kind of blowing my mind. At this point, I had some familial obligations to attend to, and I wasn't able to keep that conversation going, so I informed him of such. But I did have one more question that I wanted an answer to. I just asked, are you the person who's been sending me those cryptic voice messages and emails? He said no, but told me to consider the possibility that someone else in the project may be sending them. I've had additional conversations with this person, and I'll be sharing more of their commentary as I bring you some additional documents from the storage papers when they lend credence to them. I have to admit, I wonder what Ron would think of this, or if he has any ideas or possible connections he can make to anything Fourth Trumpet is saying. Only Ron has knowledge of the papers in their entirety, though I'm working on it. If I spent the next year just sitting down and reading them, I might be able to get through them. I just wish I had more time. I still don't know what the hell San Diego has to do with all this, that part just doesn't seem to fit. He's discussing worldwide events. 
guess I'll just have to keep digging. We're at that point of the show where I ask for your thoughts. If you have any inside knowledge or theories of events discussed in today's episode, please let me know. Thank you for listening to The Storage Papers. This week's episode was written and performed by Jeremy Enfinger. Special thanks to Nathan Lunsford for artwork and web design. Additional thanks to Cody Ditzenberger for music this week and to Zapsplat for effects. Make sure to check out our new website at thestoragepapers.com where you can catch up on all of our episodes and connect with the show's social media, including our new Facebook group to connect with the creators and discuss the show with other listeners.